welcome to the Resolving Violence podcast, created to deliver current Canadian prairie-based research on violence and abuse to service providers, people with lived experience, and the general public. I'm Jordan, and if you'd like to learn more about factors that influence violence and the ways you can address them, let's get started. Dr. Jaris Swidrovich is an assistant professor teaching stream in the Leslie Dan Faculty of Pharmacy at the University of Toronto. He is queer, two-spirit, disabled, Salto, and Ukrainian pharmacist from Yellow Quill First Nation. Dr. Swidrovich is the first and only Indigenous faculty member in pharmacy in North America. His mother was a 60-scoop survivor, and both his grandmother and great-grandmother were residential school survivors. He received a Bachelor of Science in Pharmacy from the University of Saskatchewan and a postdoctoral Doctor of Pharmacy from the University of Toronto. His primary areas of research and practice include pain, HIV and AIDS, substance use disorders, 2SLGBTQ plus health, and Indigenous health. Dr. Swidrovich is also a PhD candidate in education at the University of Saskatchewan, where he is studying Indigenous people's experiences with pharmacy education in Canada. Dr. Swidrovich recently founded and is the chair of the Indigenous Pharmacy Professionals of Canada. He has been recognized with several awards and honors, including the Queen Elizabeth II Platinum Jubilee Medal for service to the community and the National Patient Care Achievement Award from the Canadian Pharmacists Association. In today's episode, we will be discussing his paper on vaccine hesitancy in Indigenous populations in Canada, and we hope you enjoy today's episode. Hi, Jaris. Welcome to the podcast, and thank you for coming to chat with me today. Uh, so today we're going to be discussing vaccine hesitancy in Indigenous peoples in Canada based on a paper you did with Ian Mosby. Uh, but before we do that, um, I was wondering if you'd like to start us off with a land acknowledgement. Sure. So um, I'm speaking actually from Phoenix, Arizona today, where I'm celebrating my sister's convocation with a master's degree uh, but I am from Treaty 4 territory in Saskatchewan, from Yellow Quill First Nation, and uh, spent most of my life in Treaty 6 in the Métis homelands in Saskatoon. But I actually live now in Toronto, or Tikaranto, which means the land where there are trees standing in the water. It is a Mohawk term, uh, also known as Treaty 13 area and the Dish with One Spoon Treaty. So uh, I am a first person of this uh, land that we now call Canada, myself, but very much thankful for uh, the traditional territories where I've been able to move around and work and learn and play and live across uh, this nation. Yeah, thank you for that, Jaris. And just as a reminder, I am joining from Saskatoon, so that's located on Treaty 6 territory, which is home to the Cree, the Salto, Diné, Dakota, Lakota, and Nakota nations. And it's also the homeland of the Métis, which is uh, where my family is from, uh, from the Duck Lake settlement. Um, so yeah, thank you for sharing that with us. Um, so turning our focus to your paper, I think a good starting point might be some background on the vulnerabilities of Indigenous populations populations. And I'm wondering if you can explain like what some of those vulnerabilities are in terms of some of the health crises that we've faced in the last couple years. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question, even in that our, our vulnerabilities trace back much further. And it's coming mm -hmm. from a place of trauma, really. Right. Um, for some time, of course, we were the only peoples of this mm -hmm. land. And then it led to a whole bunch of other things that have happened since and even currently um, that has led to a lot of 
distrust, experimentation, um, unethical practices. Uh, we've heard about and absolutely know about the medical experiments done on Indigenous children in residential schools, vaccine experiments. And then what makes things a little awkward or suspicious in times of crises like the COVID-19 pandemic is we've lived all of this this whole time without being prioritized. And in fact, quite the opposite, sometimes even being forgotten about. But then when a brand new pandemic comes to play with a brand new vaccine using a brand new technology, we suddenly get prioritized. So it takes people back to a time of, oh goodness, are we being experimented on again, right? So we're right. kind of in this constant state of vulnerability in terms of not being the decision makers ourselves and rather being the recipients of such decisions based on what's going on locally and globally. Yeah, right. And so thinking specifically about COVID, how has the Indigenous experience looked different compared to um, the broader population in terms of like percentage of active cases, ICU admissions and deaths and things like that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, good, good question. So I'll preface my response with the like a disclaimer that Indigenous peoples are not genetically inferior by any means. And I know that you know that, but for any mm. listeners out there, um, the reason why we fared worse across different health outcomes is because of the social determinants of health in which we find ourselves as Indigenous peoples. So, you know, living in crowded housing, having limited access to healthcare services, uh, perhaps sometimes choosing not to access healthcare at all based on previous racist or discriminatory um, experiences, uh, and not just simply by virtue of being Indigenous, period. Yeah. Um, so the Indigenous experience related to the COVID-19 pandemic was unfortunately worse. So mm -hmm. higher rates of hospital admissions, higher rates of infection, and lower rates of vaccination. Uh, so we were less protected, we were less um, educated on the impacts of mm -hmm. COVID and also just the benefits of the vaccine. People in major cities and urban centers might have access to radio ads and billboards or, mm -hmm. you know, flyers, um, television right. commercials. But when you're living in a northern rural or remote community where approximately 50% of First Nations in Canada live, you don't have access to those things. And if you do, it's probably not in your first language, for example. So quite a discordance between, you know, the education and information that's offered to people at large uh, versus Indigenous peoples specifically. Uh, so we did fare worse uh, when it came to health outcomes, mm -hmm. um, but, but we persisted and survived and, and still thrive as we have for millennia. Yeah, absolutely. And I really appreciate you making that point. Like, I think it's so critical to acknowledge that it's not necessarily a genetic difference that is causing the higher, um, like cases and things like that. I think that when you hear that some sort of racial group, um, is vulnerable, more vulnerable to a, uh, an illness, like, I think that's kind of an automatic thought that comes out, but, mm -hmm. um, and sure that might be the case in some instances, um, with other diseases, other groups and things like that. But when you have a group that has been 
systemically oppressed and colonized, there are much bigger factors that need to be considered um, as to why we are seeing these higher rates. Considering the risk that Indigenous peoples have, and you talked about how, you know, they're um, we weren't necessarily getting the education about the vaccines. Um, and I know in your paper, you mentioned like there, it was kind of like the first stop was to go into indigenous populations and um, provide the vaccine. And vaccines are obviously um, a potential solution or at least a preventative measure to counteract some of these illnesses. But there is some hesitancy, right, um, in indigenous peoples, um, though not all of them. But this hesitancy isn't without reason. And I wonder if you could talk a bit about that historical legacy and kind of where that's coming from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And so another thing that I preface many responses with is um, the the use and difference of the term like historical, because yes, mm-hmm. things did happen, but things continue to happen, which contribute to our hesitancy or not necessarily hesitancy, but the length of time we might take to make that decision mm-hmm. or how it impacts our confidence um, on receiving or choosing to receive a vaccine. So previously on the historical end, um, people, Indigenous peoples were experimented on, as I mentioned before, uh, related to food. So people were intentionally given or denied certain nutrients for a span of years to see what would happen to them uh, during that time of supplementation or uh, avoidance and limitation of certain nutrients. And in fact, that's what the Canada Food Guide is still based off of, of those unethical experiments done on Indigenous children. So the Canada Food Guide is not something I uh, refer patients to. Uh, Also, the BCG vaccine, which we talked about in our paper too, this was a vaccine for tuberculosis that was unethically performed on Indigenous peoples. Um, In our previous H1N1 pandemic, uh, many Indigenous communities, well, every community and every non-Indigenous community, of course, was seeking supports. And we found that a number of our communities, the only supports we ended up receiving were body bags. Uh, when we were asking for things like sanitizer and medicines and, you know, all of the things that you might need for protection, but all we were sent by the federal government was body bags. And even currently, we see only a fraction of what goes on in the real world, but we see in the media what happens to our people when we try to access health services uh, whether we're talking about Brian Lloyd Sinclair in Winnipeg or Joyce Etchequan in um, Manitoba, Michelle Lebrecht in British Columbia, mm-hmm. uh, and many other stories that we don't hear about, about Indigenous peoples trying to access care for a completely legitimate reason, but either being denied care or not being offered the appropriate care needed because of racist or stereotypical or discriminatory assumptions. Uh, we still are finding that Indigenous women across Canada and across colonial borders into the United States and otherwise are experiencing forced and coerced sterilization. So basically being tricked into having tubal ligation or having their tubes tied. So they might be admitted to a hospital for an appendix surgery, for example, and when they go to sign that consent form for the appendix surgery, it's been added to that form that they're consenting apparently to having their tubes tied, but that was never discussed with them 
or uh, what we see is Indigenous women or uh, Indigenous peoples who are pregnant uh, experiencing a C-section. During that C-section, as painful or as scary as it might be, that's the time that the medical practitioners ask about consent to have their tubes tied. So in the moment, you know, people are more inclined to say, yes, like I don't want to experience this again. But that is not the time to request consent, right? Informed consent. So we still experience poor healthcare and racist healthcare. And in a in a world like Canada and a nation like Canada, where we still don't even have safe enough water to bathe in, in many of our communities, when it comes to this COVID-19 pandemic and a new vaccination and then being suddenly prioritized to receive this vaccination, it's reminiscent of everything that has happened and continues to happen of oh, geez, are we being experimented on? Does the rest of the world want to see how this vaccine works on us first before they start uh, getting this vaccine administered to them? And so I, as a Western-trained practitioner and pharmacist, Mm -hmm. I feel like I um, understand the Western angle of things, but I also very much appreciate and understand the Indigenous view and perception of what's Mm -hmm. going on. It can be a hard bridge to cross and a hard narrative to communicate to either side if I can call it sides Mm -hmm. but I completely appreciate and validate and affirm Indigenous people's extra time taken uh, to consider or not consider receiving the vaccine for COVID-19. Yeah absolutely thank you for shedding light on um, all of those injustices that are still happening today One critical point um, that really stood out to me in the paper was the differentiation between hesitancy that Indigenous folks are experiencing and anti-vax movements. Um, And that's obviously a very uh, sensitive subject, but I'm wondering if you could kind of expand on that differentiation and how one might make it. Yeah, for sure. So an anti-vax type of situation uh, would be someone who just completely doesn't believe in the vaccination whatsoever, and maybe even further than that, doesn't believe in the infection. (laughs) So some folks feeling that COVID-19, for example, is fake or made up Mm -hmm. or, you know, government propaganda, let's say. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas vaccine confidence, decision-making, hesitancy, whatever terms we use to call it, uh, it's not a disbelief in the vaccine or the infection itself, but rather, oh, geez, this is something really new and something that's going to be injected into my body. And I want to know what information is out there before I make this decision. In the same way that we pick up a new product at the grocery store, whether it's cereal mm. or yogurt or something, you know, check out the ingredients list, um, investigate the price. You know, are we getting our values worth for this? Um, mm-hmm. Does it have any allergens in here that I'm allergic to? It's something new and we make a decision. It doesn't mean that you don't believe in that product at all. Uh, you're just taking time <laughs> to consider it and make sure it's something that you feel okay about putting in your body or in the body of your children, your partner, partners, your family, friends, mm-hmm. etc. So, uh, yeah, quite a quite a difference. And I yeah. think that unfortunately, Indigenous peoples get painted with the wrong paintbrush of 
completely distrusting Western medicine or Western practitioners, mm-hmm. which is absolutely not the case. You're talking to an Indigenous Western trained pharmacist right now. And I certainly don't find that in my practice at all. There's some people, sure, who don't believe in, you know, any Western mm-hmm medicines or products in the same way that non-Indigenous peoples share those same beliefs, right? Yeah. So we we do believe, by and large, in Western medicines and practices and vaccinations and the COVID-19 virus, uh, or the virus that causes COVID-19, I should say. Um, but just like everybody else, this was brand new, and uh, people just wanted to do a little bit of extra research or receive some additional education versus what they might hear about on the news or social media before they choose to have it administered themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And it really comes down to that autonomy piece, right? Like there has been this kind of racist paternalism in medicine where it's kind of viewed that uh, maybe like I'm the doctor, I know I know what's best for you. And that autonomy and decision-making ability is completely removed. Um, mm-hmm. And it's just just horrible, really. Um, Mm -hmm. And with everything you've described, like, I think it's completely understandable that this hesitancy exists, and that everybody deserves the right to be able to make that decision for themselves. So what do you see as ways that we can move toward reducing some of that hesitancy while still providing Indigenous uh, peoples with that autonomy that continues to be stripped away from them? Mm -hmm. So I think this is completely multifactorial and will take a very long time um, just in general like that trust versus distrust Mm -hmm. and how anything happens like the as long as we continue to not have water that's safe enough to drink or bathe in you know there's going to be some level of distrust there or feeling inferior in the eyes of Canada right I feel like you would never see a a boil water advisory in a city like Saskatoon, Edmonton, Toronto, Vancouver for even more than a day, let alone decades, right? So we still have that. And it's hard to put full confidence in the overall society when that's when that remains a reality. So so factors like that are, that are just in general, irrespective of vaccination or healthcare are important. But then specifically to vaccination or a disease or virus like the COVID-19 pandemic, Ensuring that we listen to Indigenous communities and partners and peoples, like what works, what doesn't. I think that we've seen a lot of research that has been done and continues to be done around this exact question. Um, Something that I found in my own personal walk of life was having Indigenous-themed or Indigenous-directed vaccination clinics really seemed to work well. I spent the whole summer of 2021 being an immunizer myself at the Saskatoon Tribal Council Vaccination Clinic in Saskatoon that was held at the local arena. And uh, right at the front door, you were given the opportunity to smudge, uh, which is a a small ceremony that Indigenous peoples participate in, uh, using sage, sweetgrass, or cedar, for example. You had access to an elder, the majority, the vast majority of the staff at the clinic and even the immunizers like myself and even my younger sister uh, were Indigenous. Uh, and even the way that you moved through that whole clinic, it was in a circular arena and you entered and moved through the whole arena in a clockwise fashion. And uh, then upon exit, you were given a gift, a gift box of Indigenous-owned um, 
company's products. So like soaps awesome. and, and hand sanitizer, masks, uh, and some other items as well. I know that similar clinics across the country, like in Toronto, I'm thinking of the Aduje Clinic, it's called. Uh, they had a similar philosophy too, and it continues to run in that way. Uh, some people were given like gift cards, even for groceries, for example, as as an extra incentive as well, if people needed a little bit of an extra push in that direction. Even, you know, a tailoring communication in a way that's relevant to Indigenous peoples or whichever other community you are focusing on is very important. So one example that I think we mentioned in the paper, too, is a common teaching among Indigenous peoples across Canada is the seven grandfather teachings, mm-hmm. uh, seven generation teachings, uh, you know, respect for elders, for example. So if I were to be hesitant or not so sure about receiving this vaccine, but I received infomercials or witnessed billboards or pamphlets that showed people who look like me and look like my family and my community and talk about how receiving this vaccine will protect my elders or protect my children or grandchildren or the next seven generations, it makes sense suddenly, right? It, it becomes something that you are part of versus being outside of, which is what the majority of the communication about the pandemic and the vaccination felt like. It, none of that felt Indigenous. So, uh, yeah. you know, tailoring this communication in a way that's relevant to Indigenous peoples, I think, would be effective. And I think that we did see that it that was and still mm-hmm. is effective. Yeah, that's all super incredible. I really like that. Um, just imagining the uh, vaccines um, at the tribal council, it sounds like a really, really good experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and knowing that we have some researchers who listen, I think one thing that I often think about when it comes to doing research with Indigenous populations is first making sure it is with those in populations, but also making sure that whatever you are researching is actually of a benefit to that community and um, not to their expense um, or kind of in spite of them. Um, mm-hmm. And just really, I think, placing them as a, a priority and their their well-being. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Thank you for sharing all of that. For our last question, and we ask all of our guests this, and you can pull from this paper or just your experience broadly, but if you were to give a service provider in any field uh, one practice that they could work toward in the long term and one simple thing that they could begin implementing today to support Indigenous populations, what would that be? Believe us. (laughs) Just plain and simple is that um, Indigenous peoples are human like anybody else Mm -hmm. and I think that us not being believed has led to so much harm Um, within my own family within my community myself I don't know what it is about that but just this general assumption that we're telling a tale uh, whether it's related Mm -hmm. to healthcare or something else so so believe us you know we know what we're talking about we're a bright brilliant resilient, strong, educated bunch of folks. And um, we were able to live off and on this land for very many more years than the settler population Mm -hmm. and did a better job of it, might I say, too. And uh, so, you know, believe us, we have a lot to bring to the table. There are so many Indigenous knowledges, plural, 
uh, mm-hmm. that we hold and can bring to the table too. Western knowledge and Western knowledge systems are one thing, mm-hmm. and uh, Indigenous knowledge systems are many too. And all of us can work together. And if we are believed and our knowledge systems are believed too, I think it will be better for everyone and benefit everyone. Yeah, absolutely. That is so impactful um, hearing you say that. And I really, really appreciate it. I think another thing I would add is that I think at this point, everybody should be educating themselves and, you know, do your own work. There is never-ending resources that you can access. Most bookstores now have a whole um, Indigenous section, and um, I frequent it. There's so much to know, and I really think that the more you educate yourself, the the better that this all can get. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Jaris, for joining me today. Uh, it's been a pleasure and an honor to discuss this with you, and I also appreciate, you know, there's obviously so many ways we can take this and so many things that are left unsaid just due to the scope of of this podcast but you did an excellent job you know kind of concisely kind of discussing like what we're really facing right now and i i really appreciate it and i know our listeners will as well thank you chi mcwitch thank you for joining us for another episode of resolving violence If you're interested in learning more about today's guests and their research or Resolve Saskatchewan, please check the show notes below. And if what you listened to today was helpful, please consider sharing it with colleagues and on social media so we can work collectively to resolve violence. Thanks again. Until next time.